Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here with TRSI. I'm here today with Chris Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the IEA. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you here. Nice to see you, Gary. So Chris has uh, is the major author of the Nanny State Index, which has just come out for 2021. Ireland is actually doing a little bit better than it was before. We've gone from uh, eight to sixth. So, I mean, just before we go into it, do you want to just give a, a general outline of what the Nanny State Index is and, and what its purpose is? Yeah, sure. Um, so there are a few indexes um, of this nature. There's a economic freedom index, there's a human freedom index, civil rights, this kind of thing. There wasn't one looking specifically at these kind of social lifestyle issues, which to be specific, there's really four or five of them, um, e-cigarettes, alcohol, tobacco, food and soft drinks. And these are things that, you know, in, in Ireland and UK, and as an index shows, various other countries are regulating more and more harshly, usually in the name of public health. Um, and uh, I thought it would be interesting to see the differences between countries. We started off with the EU. Uh, for the new index, we've expanded it slightly. So we've got you know, the UK still in there, not as an EU member, but also Norway and Iceland. Uh, so we've got 30 countries in all, and it's a league table. We just give each country points for various restrictions for the size of their tax on alcohol or cigarettes or e-cigarette fluid or sh sugar, more and more things are being taxed, and the number of things they ban, basically. Um, so minimum unit pricing was put in in the previous edition. I put the booze curtain in now, thanks to Ireland, um, in the latest edition. And so it's, it's always changing. Um, and we do change the methodology from time to time. We've got to incorporate new policies that come along. But the basic rankings can be more or less compared year to year. The new entry, Norway, is top of the list. Germany is right at the bottom of the list this year. That's good, by the way. Being bottom is good. Being top is bad. If you're a liberal, at least. If you're a public health puritan, then it's the other way around. Um, but Germany comes not just bottom of the table, actually comes bottom of every category. Um, so doing really pretty well, but in general, the picture is that most countries are getting worse at varying different rates. Eastern Europe, most of the Scandinavian countries and the English speaking countries tend to do worse. Uh, Southern Europe tends to do a bit better as a general rule. What is it that it measures and what is it that it doesn't measure? Because I see here that Ireland and the UK are rated as exactly the same for e-cigarettes and vaping. But I think when you look at those countries, I mean, the UK seems to have, particularly the public health NGOs, seem to be much, much more accepting of it. There actually does seem to be a fairly substantial uh, difference there. So is this just the, the strict policies and laws in place and you don't really attempt to try and measure anything beyond that? Or what exactly are we, are we looking at here? We're, we're just measuring exactly that laws and tax rates. I adjust the tax rates for affordability. Until this recent edition, we use GDP for that, but largely thanks to Ireland's GDP being so out of whack with incomes, we've actually changed it to uh, median incomes. Um, but yeah, income-adjusted tax rates and the law as written. So we don't try and uh, adjust or incorporate the enforcement. There have been some countries, Greece, for example, until quite recently, where they had a on paper a really strict smoking ban, but it wasn't enforced. It's very difficult to quantify that, so we've never attempted mm -hmm. to do it. We're interested in really what the legislators intend as much as anything else, and we don't get involved at all at looking at general attitudes towards it. You're quite right that the UK health agencies and public health people are much more embracing of tobacco harm reduction and e-cigarettes mm -hmm. than in Ireland, and it seems that maybe Ireland will start um, introducing more regulations. But the UK and Ireland can bottom of that particular category 
because they basically haven't gold-plated the EU's Tobacco Products Directive, which does regulate e-cigarettes in various different ways. Um, nearly every other country has added something on top of that, whether it's an e-cigarette tax or incorporating vaping in smoking bans. In fact, that's quite common now. The 17 countries effectively treat smoking the same way when it comes to uh, indoor use. So you were saying there that the general trend is towards countries getting worse on this, climbing up the um, the index. What do you think is the is the primary drive behind that? Is it just increased state willingness to interfere in these areas, or is what exactly do you think it is? Well, it's not primarily at the moment the EU. That's one thing to say. Norway is top of the table for a start. It's not even an EU country. And um, there are one or two things that the EU has brought in mainly to do. In fact, exclusively really to do with e-cigarettes and tobacco. So you've got the mandatory graphic warnings. Um, you've got the ban on menthol cigarettes now. But nearly all of this really is down to domestic governments. And the massive gap between somewhere like Norway or Lithuania at the top of the table or the Czech Republic, or Czechia, I should say, now Czechia and Germany at the bottom, really does show you how much scope governments have for doing things differently. Um, where does the pressure come from? Well, I mean, it's just you know, the, the, the global public health lobby is fairly united on certain policy objectives. Um, most of it's fairly straightforward. When it's not directly involving smoking, it's taken from anti-smoking playbook, if you want to call it that. So we're talking taxes. You know, if you don't want people to consume a product, you just put tax on it. That's fairly basic economics 101, um, law of demand. Um, and then you've got various other things to discourage consumption, banning advertising. It doesn't actually work really in practice, but they, they tend to go for something like that early on. Um, and banning the use by restricting licensing hours or in the number of licensing premises. It's all what they call the three A's, affordability, availability, and advertising. Um, they, they tend to be the supply side policies designed it, um, essentially just discouraging and deterring people from buying product. They, they are sometimes aimed at the industry. It's kind of designed to put sand in the gears of how businesses can work. Uh, but often it's aimed directly at the public. So something uh, like you know outdoor drinking bans or indeed outdoor smoking bans, these are directly affecting the consumers and telling them not to do that. Where does it all come from ultimately? I mean, it's... Um, you know, the, 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 as I say, the general kind of global, certainly European public health lobby have certain things that they, they, they want to do. Um, they tend to copy from one another. So once one country does something, there is a immediate conversation about, well, you know, Australia has brought in plain packaging for tobacco. We should, we should follow them. Or Hungary has brought in all these taxes on food and soft drinks. We should follow them. There's no particular reason why you would follow Hungary or Australia, you know, in the normal course of events, but you might be more inclined to follow the majority of countries that are not doing it or the way that it's always been done in the past. But now these, you, know, you get one country that is the trendsetter, Ireland, of course, with the smoking ban back in 2004. And then that is shown to purportedly work and every other country must follow um, it. There's a big incentive actually for a lot of public health ministers or health ministers to do this kind of stuff. I don't know what it's like in Ireland. I, th I think it's quite similar. You've had James Riley, for example, over the years. Um, but you know, these guys and gals, they find that they can get quite a lot of attention uh, they might even get an award from the world health organization down the line, but they get quite a lot of publicity. Um, and particularly if they're the public health minister as distinct from the health minister, which is a pretty junior position in, in Britain, the public health minister, 
Um, there's not a lot else they can really do. I mean, they could be planning for pandemics, but obviously they don't think about doing that. So they they think about, you know, shall we put sweets in plain packaging or bring in a sugar tax? So there is a kind of political driver for doing this stuff. These people are surrounded by activists who are telling them they can save thousands of lives by doing X, Y, and Z. They get their name on the front of the paper for a while. There's a national debate around these things. Radio stations are always wanting to talk about, you know, what's the next thing we should ban. So it's part of the general public conversation. And it's usually fairly low cost for politicians to bring this stuff in. Um, the costs are usually borne on industry or the consumer, consumer ultimately. Um, but they don't tend to pay a big political price for it. And there isn't a massive financial price to be paid by the government. So, and with taxes, of course, they actually make money from it. So there, there are incentives there which tend to drive governments in a less liberal rather than a more liberal direction. And that will continue until the public starts, you know, demanding a bit more liberalism. I that, that handles politicians. But when we look at the the broader kind of motivations for this, I know you yourself have written about uh, prohibition in the United States and its its links in with kind of religious, if you call it do-gooderism sort of thing. But looking at a lot of the countries up the top of this, they, if anything, they would be in that sort of post-Christian space. So what do you think is is the motivation behind this on the part of these people? Well, it's interesting you bring in history because I, th- I think it is an important point that the countries at the top tend to be English-speaking, Eastern European or Scandinavian. Well, there are exceptions. Denmark's a bit lower down the, the list for the time being. But um, there is a theory related to the temperance movement and alcohol that the reason that you had a temperance movement in essentially Northern Europe is that you had people drinking a lot of spirits and there was a lot of binge drinking, I guess you'd call it these days. You know, didn't call it that 500 years ago, but binge drinking. Whereas the stereotype about people drinking kind of um, less heavily, but more frequently in Southern Europe is is pretty much true. So you have the spirits drinking countries in the North, the wine drinking countries in the South. The South never really had a temperance movement. I mean, even France never had a temperance movement. The other distinction is that the ones in the North tend to be Protestant, whereas ones in the South tend to be Catholic. And there's a different kind of obviously different mentality that goes beyond just religious belief from that. Ireland, of course, is the notable exception. Ireland did have a temperance movement in the, um, in, in the 19th century, despite being Catholic. Um, but by and large, that's how it tends to go. And even if you look further afield at places like, well, parts of America, New Zealand, Australia, these are all Protestant countries. And they all had a temperance movement. And some of them had outright prohibition. Parts of Scandinavia had outright prohibition. Um, and it's notable, I think, that all those countries now are not only having a bit of a revival of of temperance, but have been the strongest on clamping down on smoking. A lot of them have been clamping down on vaping. A lot of them now are going down this, you know, food regulation move. Now, I'm not, I haven't thought this through well enough to really flesh it out, but it seems more than a coincidence that this is going on. In Eastern Europe at the moment, we're seeing a, a revival of temperance, but again, big spirit drinking countries, traditionally, very much so. Um, and they're really having a go at, um, at alcohol and at drinkers at the moment. Very big tax rises. Uh, Lithuania quite recently raised the drinking age to 20, um, which is you know, one of the very few countries in Europe to have done that. Iceland and Norway have also hired 
uh, drinking ages, especially for spirits, notably. Um, so I think there is some there's something related to having a history of temperance and having a history of Protestantism that leans countries towards state control and and um, kind of a paternalistic outlook which results in regulation and you still don't see that so much in places like spain or greece although greece actually is quite high it's a bad example greece is the only southern european country in the top half of the table although that is a lot down to taxation they've been trying to claw back money basically since the financial crisis and they've been putting taxes up left right and center so looking across the things that, that the index grades obviously there's going to be movement every year every year but are you finding that in some of these categories, movement is largely shut down? And like on tobacco, are things relatively stable or are they still moving around? Or is it the case that all of these are still live issues? Uh, they're all still live issues. There are still things happening in, in tobacco. Um, plain packaging hasn't really caught on as quickly as some anti-smoking proposals. Possibly governments have kind of realized it doesn't make any difference. I don't know. Um and you still see significant changes in tax rates. Tax rates are a big part of the nanny state index. We, we actually maybe explained this before, but we give things different weightings as you always have to do in these indexes. So you have to decide what is mo more important, you know? And when we were coming up with this in 2016, the basic rule of thumb was something that has a really big effect on consumers is, should be more important than something that, that has less of an effect on consumers. So although we've got, for example, advertising restrictions in there, and advertising restrictions do have an effect on consumers, we don't give them anywhere near as much weight as something like a smoking ban or taxes, which really have an effect on people's um, you know, lifestyles, but also their, their disposable income. So we, uh, we, we focus on... Um, on, on taxes quite a bit and they change quite a bit from time to time. So that will affect the rankings, but then there's movement across the board. I mean, it's not as if countries in Europe have exhausted what they can do with um, tobacco. It feels in Ireland and the UK, perhaps are running out of ideas. I mean, the latest uh, you know, slew of proposals in, in Britain this week, it was pretty desperate stuff. It was like, let's double the price of cigarettes every five years. Okay. And not allow you know cigarettes to be shown at all even in like reality tv programs until 9, 9 p.m at the earliest so they do it does feel like they're really scraping the barrel with tobacco now but a lot of countries are still behind the uk if you want to put it like that so uh, yeah there's still places bringing in you know vending machine bans um display bans plain packaging stuff like that with e-cigarettes loads of stuff that countries are thinking about doing and, and are doing Denmark and Netherlands, I think are both looking at plain packaging for e-cigarettes and food and drink. I mean, a lot of countries score zero on food and drink because they're not really doing anything. Um, that that's where I think the, the room will be for policy over the next decade or so be more and more of a clampdown on so-called junk food uh, on soft drinks. More and more countries are taxing soft drinks and energy drinks and even artificially sweetened drinks. Um, but there's clearly scope for doing a lot more if the, the nanny statists get their way. They clearly see that as the next dragon to slay. I mean, we'll go into e-cigarettes in a second, but in relation to tobacco, is there any country that's actually moving towards less restrictions and less taxes? No, no. I mean, there isn't really, that, there isn't really any sign of that in any of the categories. Mm -hmm. Every now and again, a government will shelve a proposal 
you know, they might say, oh, we're going to do plain packaging or we're going to bring in a sugar tax. And then they're, they're, either there's a change of government and they change their mind. Uh, that happened with the smoking ban in Austria a couple of years ago. They're going to bring in a big smoking ban. Then the government changed. Then the, that government fell. And then they did bring in a, a big smoking ban. All this stuff tends to happen eventually. You know, it's just... It's like, you know, they've only got to be lucky once. We have to be lucky every time kind of thing. Um, but no, there's no sign of liberalism in any of these areas, except for the, the ad, odd ad hoc thing like that. Um, you, you might see taxes fall now and again. Italy slashed its tax on e-cigarettes a few years ago. Um, some of the Eastern European countries have reduced their tax rates on alcohol because they've hiked them up so high that people just cross over the border to Estonia or Finland or whatever, you know. Maybe not Finland, probably the people from Finland are uh, coming over to Latvia or Estonia. But you get cross-border shopping and it takes governments a while to realize that the Laffer curve is real and you can't just keep putting tax up again and again when you have freedom, freedom of movement and freedom of trade. So, yeah, you get these little wins along the way. Occasionally, the high court will rule something to be unconstitutional. That happened, weirdly enough, in Greece with their wine duty. Uh, about half the countries in, in the index don't tax wine at all mostly wine producing countries you won't be surprised to hear um and greece uh, following the financial crisis and all the problems that emerged from that under saritza they brought in a, a tax on wine for the first time in greece's history very long history and it didn't go down very well and for some reason i don't quite understand the legalities of this but for some reason the high court said this was unconstitutional so they got quite a sound constitution if nothing else in in greece but no the short answer is there's very little in the way of liberalizing things you don't really get governments coming in saying we've had enough of the nanny state we're going to get rid of it i mean boris johnson kind of said that but he hasn't actually followed through on it so looking at, at e-cigarettes which is the category we actually score the best in Within Ireland, I mean, the laws are as they are, but we've seen considerable pushes coming from NGOs, uh, health workers. There seems to be on a sort of civil society level, nearly a consensus that we should move towards more restrictive uh, licensing on them, that we should restrict flavours, maybe we should restrict point of sale, tax them at the same level of tobacco. Now, when I looked into it, e-cigarettes seem to be a tool which is very effective at people quitting smoking is much less harmful and also saves smokers considerable amounts of money, which is obviously a massive concern because smokers tend to be, at least in Ireland, and I would imagine across a lot of Europe, they tend to be more working class. Uh, the unemployed are far more likely to smoke, those with mental health issues, the homeless. I imagine this is something you've run into in other countries. Do you have any idea what the, what the major push against e-cigarettes is? Because when you look at the actual raw statistics of it it seems like a potential win in an area of public health where public health officials have spent decades trying to get movement on it and have not failed but have been very much ineffective in a lot of their attempts to get people to actually stop smoking yeah and in england you know the the good guys won on that and most of the public health people have kind of followed suit but we were lucky in a way i mean public health people tend to go with the crowd you know it's not a coincidence that in england nearly all public health people are pro vaping but in australia they're nearly all anti-vaping um they're all they've all got access to exactly the same evidence what happens is a few people stand up and say actually i think this is good or i think this is bad and everybody else just, just follows them and when we had public health england come out uh and be quite bold on e-cigarettes and say no this is definitely something to welcome we know that they you know the they have a if they have a risk of all it's a fraction of the risk 
of smoking. And then you had that kind of proven, really, if you just looked at, as you say, the aggregate data, you see vaping rates going up quite sharply. You see smoking rates going down quite sharply, having been flat for years, despite all the nanny state policies that were thrown at smokers, the smoking ban, the graphic warnings, all this stuff didn't really have, didn't really make a mark at all on the smoking rate. Vaping comes along, suddenly uh, smoking rates fall. Now, of course, correlation, causation, you can't prove it. But if you have a plausible theory and you have millions of vapors saying, yeah, I used to smoke like a chimney, as I did, and now I only vape, then you start to pay attention to that. So why aren't other countries, why aren't all the other countries following suit? Um, there are a number of reasons. Uh, one, to be cynical about it is from the point of view of government, there isn't a lot of tax money to be made from it. Even if you do tax e-cigarette fluid, you're never going to be able to tax it at the kind of rate that you're taxing cigarettes. And cigarettes are, you know, they're a small but significant contributor to the to the government's revenues. So that was definitely, for example, a factor when Italy brought in quite a big tax on e-cigarettes. And then the politicians were pretty open about it. They said, look, we're seeing our tobacco duty revenues falling, so we need to claw it back somehow. Okay, fine, but you know, just don't pretend that your anti-smoking policies are about health in that case. Um, another reason is that you've got some pretty fanatical people, particularly on the west coast of America in academia, uh, very lavishly funded, ultimately by cigarette taxes, and they've never liked e-cigarettes. They've never liked the sound of them. Why wouldn't they? Well, I think there's basically two reasons why public health people might be against e-cigarettes. One is that the tobacco industry is now involved in the market. Now, the tobacco industry didn't invent e-cigarettes. They didn't even buy up or start selling e-cigarettes until 2013, once it already become really quite well established. And they understandably saw them as a threat. So what do you do if you see something as a threat? Well, you can lobby against it, as I think some of the companies did and possibly still do. Um, or you can say, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So you know, th if this is the way the world is going, then we need to get on board that. And I think that should be welcomed. I think, you know, the tobacco industry isn't going to disappear and you throw up its arms and say, okay, we're going to get out of the cigarette business unless it has another business to go into. And this is an obvious one to go into. So that's the first reason some people don't like it because they associate it with the tobacco industry. They see it as a way for the tobacco industry to survive. And they think that somehow the tobacco they're going to defeat the tobacco industry in the near future it's not going to happen it's utopianism but that's what they think is going to happen so they see that as a as an obstacle to destroying the tobacco industry the other reason is um i would just sum it up as being basic puritanism which is there used to be a sort of thought experiment you'd hear some some smokers say uh, which would be you know if if there was a cure for lung cancer tomorrow or if if cigarettes could be made totally safe tomorrow would the anti-smoking people still be against them. In other words, is it a moral thing with these people? They just don't like people enjoying themselves uh, or they just don't like the smell of tobacco smoke or is it genuine paternalism? They really think people would be better off not smoking. And the e-cigarette thing has more or less answered that question. You've got something that is you know, as close to safe as any, any smoker could really ask for. And yet there are still people who are against it. Um, the WHO, World Health Organization, only a couple of months ago put out a press release. No, actually, yes, it's a lie. This week, this week, last week, put out a press release saying um, switching to e-cigarettes is not quitting. 
And you hear people say that sometimes, you know, if you go around vaping, they say, yeah, well, when are you actually going to quit? Well, I don't smoke at all. Yeah, but when are you really going to quit? You mean quit nicotine? Well, why should I quit nicotine? I'm quite happy uh, consuming nicotine. Um, it really does come down to that this is none of your business kind of thing. So those are the two reasons. There's a kind of moral puritanism and absolutism where we need to work for a nicotine-free world, which is another thing that WHO came out with quite recently. Not just a tobacco-free world, but a nicotine-free world. Well, I don't think either of those ambitions are realistic, and you're going to do a huge amount of damage by trying to achieve them. And there's also no economic or ethical or even health justification for working towards a nicotine-free world. So let's just be a bit more pragmatic about it. And that's what it comes down to. It's the pragmatists versus the idealists. The idealists think that we're only a few years away from wiping out smoking, wiping out the tobacco industry. So why compromise it now? by allowing this, by allowing people to vape or use other safer nicotine products. The pragmatists, on the other hand, realize that that is a fantasy. It's not going to happen. Prohibition doesn't work and people, you're not going to get a billion smokers suddenly deciding to stop using nicotine. Um, so that's what it comes down to. You've got idealists and you have a lot of idealists on the West Coast of America. Uh, natural prohibitionists, they only like supply side measures. They just, it's all about just kicking smokers and kicking the industry until they fall over. Um, and that is actually having, and has had for some time now, diminishing returns. Even tax rises, which do have an effect on consumption, producing unintended consequences in the black market, um, are making the poor poorer. And, and smoking now is you know, overwhelmingly, really, um, within the kind of lower socioeconomic groups. So people you know, talk about health inequalities, but they're quite happy to kick smokers with these kind of tax rises. So yeah, that's that's. I, there's probably other reasons why some people are opposed to it, but I think those are the two main ones. One area that's not it's not technically e-cigarettes and it's not really the tobacco area either, is this area of heated tobacco products. It's not really coming up in Ireland at all, but is there any movement on that at the European level or... That would where would that fall in the uh, the index actually? Uh, it's included um, under tax. It's actually something that we added this year. So there's a little category for heated tobacco duty because um, more and more countries are taxing. It. I mean they all tax it, but they're, they're, a lot of them are bringing in a new category specifically for heated tobacco. The UK actually taxes it more than anybody else. Um, the tax I think everywhere is still a bit lower than uh, it is for cigarettes, which makes sense from a harm reduction perspective. There, there is quite a bit of evidence on their harm reduction potential. Um, the UK Committee on Toxicity a couple of years ago said that you know drastic reductions in the levels of this chemical, this chemical, this chemical. You know, a lot of the sort of candidate chemicals that we think are associated with with cancer are emitted at a much lower level. There's much much less side stream smoke as well, so also known as secondhand smoke. Um, so there isn't any serious doubt about them being a lot safer. The, the U.S. Food and Drink Administration, which is now approving reduced risk products uh, and allowing them to be marketed as such, has finally approved ICOS. It's a very, very difficult thing to do to get the FDA to approve anything. I think it's only approved two products in the last decade, but it has approved ICOS, which is a Philip Morris's heated tobacco product. Um, and you're right, they kind of have flown under the radar in a lot of places, partly because you can't advertise them anywhere. So it's quite difficult to let consumers know about it, but also anti-smoking campaigners have not, not noticed them too much. So it's certainly not been going on about them as much as they have about vaping recently. Nicotine pouches are another one, you know, where, um, they've kind of flown under the radar, even though this is kind of like snooze. If you're aware of snooze, it's, um, it's essentially like a smokeless tobacco product without any tobacco in it. 
falls under a weird category for regulation. But there are, this is the point. There are more and more these reduced risk nicotine products coming to market. Um, governments really should resi- resist the temptation to overtax them or certainly ban them. But they won't do, you know, for the same reasons I've just gone through. You know, it's exactly the same mentality. It's still nicotine. It's still the tobacco industry in many instances. So we we can't be having it. Let's nip it in the bud. Well, it's very counterproductive nipping these things in the bud because I like vaping. Clearly, a lot of people in, in Britain around the world like vaping, find it a totally you know a satisfactory substitute for smoking. But a lot of smokers don't. A lot of smokers have tried it and don't like it. Maybe they'd like heated tobacco. Maybe they'd like snus or nicotine pouches or something else. You can put nicotine to all sorts of devices, potentially. So I say let a, a thousand flowers bloom. So in, in the Irish context, the tobacco discussion appears to be effectively totally over. There is broad sale agreement that whatever happens or whatever restrictions are put in place, that's fine and and we'll just, we'll just do it without discussion. E-cigarettes are actively being discussed but there is sort of a feeling it might be the next year to two or three years before we actually start seeing harsh regulation and and a real talk of a crackdown what is actively being discussed at the minute though is alcohol mostly the minimum uh, unit pricing of it now our cabinet has just signed off on that they're moving forward with it We've seen restrictions coming through over the last couple of months. This year, they uh, they accidentally banned giving brides free Prosecco at dress fittings because they had decided that barbers giving people a drink while they're getting a haircut could absolutely not be allowed. It, it strikes one as a real sort of denormalization project. But one thing we hear constantly when uh, MUP comes up in Ireland is Scotland. But Scotland did it. It worked. There was no cross-border traffic. People didn't go down south to pick up alcohol. And I just, this would obviously be something that you'd be aware of. Was that the Scottish experience? Did it work in Scotland? Yeah, I think it's still too early to say, in all honesty. And it depends what you mean by work. I mean, you, you, my idea of policy working would be if the benefits outweigh the cost. I don't think anyone's really doing a full cost-benefit analysis. I think, to be fair to the Scottish government, they have commissioned some reasonably good people to evaluate it. And the stuff I've seen coming out so far from the evaluation has mostly been quite good. Um, it's difficult to assess because, uh, well, partly because of COVID. I mean, it's going to be very difficult to assess it from sort of last March because we've seen crazy things going on with alcohol. I mean, it seems to be, and I, I discussed this with one of your public health people in Ireland on the radio recently, um, you've seen alcohol consumption fall pretty much everywhere. Actually, not quite everywhere, but most places. Certainly in Ireland, I think it went down by 6% last year. Mm. It went down. We haven't got the figures yet in the UK, but it definitely went down last year. But alcohol-related harm went up really quite sharply. I mean, quite an alarming increase in alcohol-related harm. I I Mm. wouldn't be at all surprised if you see exactly the same thing in Ireland. Uh, Globally, alcohol consumption has gone down by 6%. Again, I would be surprised if you see a reduction in alcohol-related deaths or alcohol-related harm as a result of that. But here's the thing you should do according to the kind of mentality that is behind minimum unit pricing. There should be a direct correlation between consumption and harm. And you should see the effects of harm from a drop in consumption really quite rapidly, which is true, actually. You do, you know, when you do see a correlation, it does tend to be quite rapid. But you don't always see a correlation. Uh, and when you do see a correlation, it tends to be because heavy drinkers are drinking less. And heavy drinkers drink so much of the alcohol in any given society that if you have fewer heavy drinkers for whatever reason, you'll see a reduction in consumption. But that doesn't mean that if you just reduce consumption by any means, you're going to see a reduction in alcohol-related harm. This is a putting a cart behind before the horse situation. 
Uh, you kind of, you know, uh, is the tail wagging the dog. Um, getting people who are not drinking excessively to drink less alcohol is not a benefit to anybody, but you can reduce alcohol consumption that way. Um, what you need to do is you need to target heavy drinkers. And some people would say that minimum pricing does that because heavy drinkers often drink the, the cheapest alcohol. The question then is whether the dependent drinkers are going to be significantly influenced by a hike in the price of cheap cider or cheap beer, or if in fact they're just going to switch to something else. The evidence from Scotland is, I would say, equivocal. Um, I mean, there was a slight rise in alcohol-related deaths in the first year of minimum pricing or the first eight months of minimum pricing in 2018, basically. It came in in, in, in May 2018. There was a slight rise then. There was a fall uh, in 2019 of, uh, I mean, not, not a trivial fall. Uh, rates went down by about 10%, I think. That's by no means unprecedented. They'd fallen by at least as much as that two or three times in the previous 20 years. So it could be coincidence or it could be at least partially connected to minimum pricing. I'm open to that being a possibility. Certainly alcohol consumption went down a little bit um, after minimum pricing came in, whereas it didn't in England. So if you want to use England as a control group, then I think you can probably say there was an effect from minimum pricing there. But it only went down, if I remember, by 2.9%. That doesn't seem to me to be a colossal or, or even really very meaningful reduction in consumption, given that we were told to believe that minimum pricing was the single best way of reducing alcohol consumption, alcohol abuse on the table, even better than tax rises, we were told. Scotland went to court, went to the European Court of Justice, making exactly that case, because the Europeans said, well, can't you just increase taxes? If you increase taxes, then you'll affect the the rich as well. And it's actually the rich who drink more than the poor on average, right? And then they said, no, it's, it's, it's the single best thing. And that's why you've got to let us do it. 2.9% um, drop in consumption. We shall see what happens with alcohol-related deaths in the years ahead. But it doesn't seem to me like it's had very much of an effect at all. But as I say, the COVID thing will screw things up. But it's going to be a final point on this, because I think it's important to note that Ireland has saw a reduction in alcohol consumption of 6%, I believe, last year. Minimum pricing, if you, if you believe that that little drop was entirely due to minimum pricing in Scotland, 2.9%. I've seen twice the effect of minimum pricing without doing minimum pricing just by virtue of lockdowns and the, and the pubs being closed. I don't think that will lead to a reduction in alcohol-related deaths. I suspect you'll be very similar to England and you'll see an increase in alcohol-related deaths. Why would that be? Well, because it's not really about the price. It's about people's circumstances. We're not talking about moderate. Moderate drinkers are not dropping dead from, from alcohol. It's very heavy drinkers who are dying from alcohol. And they're not drinking alcohol because it's perceived to be cheap. It wasn't cheap in Scotland before minimum pricing came in compared to you know most of the countries in the nanny state index. It certainly isn't cheap in Ireland. Um, there are there are you know deep psychological reasons why people become alcoholics. It's a very complex issue, but you're not going to change them by bumping up the price of white cider. They're just going to switch to spirits, probably. In Scotland, big increase in the sale of fortified wine, massive decrease in the sale of white cider, which was the kind of the emblematic alcoholic drink that the minimum pricing campaigners kept going on and on about. Yeah, that basically disappeared pretty much from the market. But people started drinking Buckfast instead. They started drinking spirits instead. Is it better for people to be drinking Buckfast and spirits than cider and beer? I think probably the jury is out on that. And there has been evidence from Scotland looking specifically at uh, the drinking behavior of heavy 
drinkers, and also uh, alcohol-related hospital admissions, which haven't gone down. Um, so yeah, there's quite a bit of evidence showing it hasn't really had any effects. It might, we might get more of it, and Wales has also brought in minimum pricing. We can see what happened there. But I mean, Wales brought in minimum pricing in the middle of lockdown, so there are confounding factors there. But yeah, we certainly haven't seen any effects in Wales either. So yeah, I wouldn't get too excited about it. And the minimum price in Ireland is quite a lot higher than it is in Scotland, so it's really going to hurt people on kind of lower middle incomes. Yeah, I mean, it's been quite interesting to see because we've been people who have against it have been pointing out that problem drinkers, incredibly heavy drinkers, have an addiction. They may not be terribly price sensitive, and it may end up that they just end up spending more of the household income on alcohol because they are trying to deal with with an addiction, with uncontrolled drinking in certain cases. The people it will impact are people who are just enjoy drinking for enjoyment at whatever level. And the point you make on alcohol-related harms and alcohol-related deaths, a lot of the organisations we've seen in Ireland pushing for this have sold this on the basis of, well, it will increase public health and it will drive down harms. But they will also say things like there is no safe level of alcohol consumption, that even a single drink is harmful. So I would suspect to them that a fall in the alcohol consumption rate will be enough, will be taken as, you know, we have done the good thing here. One thing of particular interest and one concern that we have in Ireland at the minute is about Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland has also been talking about bringing this in, but is lagging behind the Republic on it. Are you familiar with, with Scotland? Was there any spillover to British um, supermarkets or off licenses or the like? Did some of Scotland's demand just go south? There was some. and I know that because I've seen photos of people doing it. Um, in the supermarkets of Carlisle, I've heard from people who do it on a, a fairly regular basis. The scale of it, we'll probably never know because, unfortunately, the Scottish evaluation didn't include that. Seems to me a reasonably easy thing to to test. Actually, if you just got the the sales figures from you know shops and supermarkets on either side of the border, you could um, you probably see an effect. So yeah, it's happened to some extent. Um, and it does make economic sense if you've got a van in particular, or even just a big boot in your car. If you're a big fan of strong cider um, and you don't live too far from the border, then yeah, it makes economic sense to do it. It'd be more interesting to see what happens in Wales because yeah, there you've got a very short distance between Wales and England. I mean, big towns in Wales and England. I mean, supermarkets in Wales and England are very close together. You just have to go over the Seven Bridge, which the government helpfully got rid of the toll on just before they brought in minimum pricing. So that made things uh, even more economically enticing. And, and I'd be amazed if there hasn't been a lot of um, cross-border shopping going on between Wales and England. And there's bound to be, of course, in, in Ireland. I mean, there already is. You know, even I know that, and I'm English. You know, there's, and then that's why it was slowed down for so long, because I know the public health bill was passed years ago, and they were waiting for Northern Ireland to do it. And because Northern Ireland has tended not to have much of a functioning government, they just decided to go for it. Yeah, it's just going to exacerbate that, isn't it? Very good for people in Northern Ireland, I guess, if you run a shop. Yeah, if you're near the border, it's not a it's not a long drive. So I suppose the last thing on this is, is food and soft drinks. Now Ireland doesn't really have much of a conversation on that. We've seen things like um, there's talk about requiring restaurants to have calorie counts on their menus, sugar taxes, those sorts of things. But what's the sort of conversation on that you're seeing in places like Hungary, who are seem to be near the top um, on that? And what are the sort of things we could be expecting down the line here, I suppose? Well, Hungary's got something called the chips tax, which um, goes far beyond chips, whether they mean um, 
fried chips or potato chips. They tax, oh, so many, so many foods, all at different rates. But anything, you know, there's a specific tax for, for jam and, you know, peanut butter and, and what have you. Um, so extensive taxes on foods that are high in sugar and salt and fat. Uh, really a public health person's dream of what they'd like to do. Hungary, I think, has an even higher rate of obesity than the UK, which is saying something. Uh, it's certainly in the top three in, in terms of Europe. Um, and they've had this chip tax in for quite a long time. So there's no no obvious um, signs that it has been effective. Um, so, yeah, that's something that I, I think we can see more of. It's um, it's all a bit difficult for governments with, with this food regulation thing. They want to do it. And Boris Johnson really wants to do a whole lot of this stuff. Um, but there's a fundamental political problem, which is that although the public health people term a whole range of food as being junk and people don't like the sound of junk food obviously it's a pejorative term but there's no legal definition of junk food what we've got instead is a really quite um puritanical category of high in fat sugar and salt hfss and that is in fact what boris johnson's uh, anti-obesity policies are going to be aimed at high in fat sugar and salt and that's much, a much broader category than what most people think of as junk food. When people think of junk food, I think they mainly think of fast food, right? fast food restaurants in particular. High in fat, sugar, and salt encompasses olive oil, roast lamb. Um, more obviously, it includes things like jam and ice cream. You know, I mean, they're obviously very high in sugar, but still, do people really think of jam as being um, a junk food? I remember Jeremy Corbyn saying he was very anti-sugar a few years ago. His hobby is, is making jam. So, so this is kind of disconnecting people's minds between what they consider to be unhealthy junk food and what actually in si simple scientific terms is actually very high in sugar, salt, or fat. Um, and so once the government realized that by, for example, it wants to bring in a, um, an online advertising ban for so-called junk food, HFSS food, a total 24-hour day, all platforms, including your own website, you can't advertise HFSS food, which means that, for example, the local wedding cake maker can't put an advert on Facebook or even really advertise their own cakes. It means a local bakery can't advertise on Google AdWords or something like this. And very quickly, people start thinking, ah, I thought this was about McDonald's, but actually it's about mustard, you know, <laughs> and all these other products. It's for most sandwiches. Um, any desserts, any confectionery, any biscuits. And suddenly it starts to look a bit over the top. And no other government has tried to do what the UK government is currently doing in terms of advertising. And not just advertising, also about where you can place products. So you can't place these products at the end of the aisle, at the checkout, at the entrance of supermarkets. Where are you supposed to put them? Where is a supermarket supposed to put its Easter eggs at Easter? You know, the only place where there's really room is the big, the big entrance. So there are massive practical problems with it. The more you drill into the detail, the more ludicrous it seems to the vast majority of people who happily eat so-called junk food all the time without thinking of it as such. That's the issue. Um, and I don't see any easy way around it, because I think you open yourself up to serious legal challenges if you start saying, actually, we don't mean all food that's high in fat and sugar and salt. We just mean these specific American fast food corporations. They can't advertise, but everyone else can. I think legally in most countries, that would be a bit dodgy. 20 years ago, a lot of the things we've seen now, the sort of nanny state stuff, would have been seen as, as a totally unacceptable intrusion into either the market or into people's choice, 
or even just kind of petty and mean in relation to some things like maybe muck. From your work putting together this and seeing kind of the standard of debate across these countries, is there anything you think is, is currently sort of not really considered a serious thing, but is going to become a major new front for this over the next couple of years or is kind of moving in that direction, but is currently just seen as, as totally beyond the pale? Yeah, I think probably two things stand out. One is just the total prohibition of cigarettes, which is now being quite openly talked about amongst public health people. And I dare say some country, maybe Ireland, some country, maybe England, will introduce it. It'll be controversial, but it, the, the eyes of the world will be on this country. It will probably actually, I mean, Bhutan actually already does ban cigarettes, but it needs to be a slightly larger country than that. Maybe New Zealand or somebody will, will ban cigarettes and there'll be a huge public debate about it. The world will be watching and whatever happens, it will be seen to have worked and that they'll say the, the sales of cigarettes collapsed nearly to zero. It works. Yeah. And then it will be another case of we've got to, you know, this country is a world leader. We've got to follow them. I think that's one thing. I think the other thing, which probably seems silly now, but could happen is um, a meat tax, um, maybe specifically red meat or processed meat to start with. But on that issue, you've got some public health people aligned with a lot of environmentalists because um, there are supposedly climate change and greenhouse gas emissions around beef in particular but meat in general. And also, of course, you've got the vegetarians and the vegans. So you've got three special interest groups there who are pretty good at getting their voices heard, who all want the same thing. And it would be very unpopular with a lot of people. Perhaps they'd start the tax off quite low to begin with. Uh, maybe it would be earmarked for some particular nice sounding project. That's always a good way to get people on side with taxes. But I, I think that will happen. Again, I, I'm not sure there are any countries do it at the moment. I don't think so. Um, but somebody will. And it will be portrayed as a great success and the rest of the world will follow. And eventually the EU will have an EU-wide uh, stake tax or something. I think those two things, I don't. maybe they don't even sound absurd anymore, either of those ideas. I mean, they do get written about from time to time. So I suppose as a final question, it often seems like a lot of the movement we're seeing on this is coming primarily from NGOs rather than public demand for it. Yeah. So if, if a member of the public or someone in a particular industry is interested in fighting for more kind of reasonable policies here that focus more on individual choice and allowing the market to operate, is there anything you've seen be effective in any of these countries or is there anything that you would recommend these people would do perhaps to avoid a situation where you know, we, we end up with law that is either oppressive or, as I said, just petty and mean? Well, I don't know much about the ins and outs of lobbying. I dare say there is lobbying going on all the time, of which I'm unaware, which actually is successful. From my perspective, looking at this from the outside, it feels like a proposal comes along, there's a bit of fighting about it, a fairly half-baked campaign against it, and then the government does it anyway. So it, it does feel like a losing battle. But I'd say maybe there's more going on behind the scenes, and I realize it's slowing some of this stuff down at least. Um, I think the main thing is foresight. You know, you have to see this stuff coming. And I mean, the two examples I've just given are something that I think consumers and businesses should be considering as being a serious proposition. And once it happens, there will be a domino effect. So there's no point just saying, and I think the tobacco industry was a bit like this with, with the smoking ban from what I've heard from my friend Simon Clark at Forest. They, you know, Ireland were talking about a smoking ban and the tobacco industry was like, well, it's a tiny market for us. You know, it doesn't really matter. But of course, it was a precedent. It was immediately copied around the world. Um, 
Now, as it happens, smoking bans don't have that big an effect on on the smoking rate, at least. They do seem to reduce the number of cigarettes smoked. Um, but that seems to me a pretty obvious example of something. Well, this is <laughs> undesirable. Um, I mean, just from their narrow financial perspective. And smokers were like, well, why didn't the tobacco industry do more to, to stop this happening? And of course, the tobacco industry is limited in what it can do because it, it doesn't have uh, a lot of respect, shall we say. Um, and there's only so much businesses can do. But I think it needs to be more alert to the to the dangers and take um, some of these threats more seriously. You don't have to be reading the tea leaves to see what's down the line. You know, the medical journals and the public health conferences talk pretty openly about what they want to do. In the case of alcohol, food and soft drinks, you've got the blueprint from what they did with with smoking. You know, that's one of the things that got me into this line of work in the first place is I, I'd seen what happened to smokers. I'd been, a, I was a smoker myself at the time. I could see them saying they're going to do exactly the same kind of things with drinkers and people who eat food. And I thought this shouldn't be allowed to happen. We need to, we need to stop this. So no, I don't have any specific campaigning tips and I'm not, you know, I don't think I'd make a very good campaigner, but I think you need to take these people seriously when they say things, assume the worst, assume that at some point, nanny status will find some gullible or egotistical health ministers in some country in the world, and they will really push for this to be their thing. And then after that, there's a good chance the dominoes may fall. So it's a huge job of work. As I said before, you know, they've got to be lucky once, we've got to be lucky every time. Um, but also the other thing, I guess, is engage with the consumers. If we're just talking here about industry, engage with the consumers. If we're just talking about consumers, get engaged, do something about it. I don't know. I, I just said I, I don't do any campaigning, so maybe I'm a fine one to talk. But the EU MEPs, in all fairness to them, they did listen to vapors a few years ago when they said this tobacco products directive is unacceptable. This is at a time when the EU wanted to essentially regulate e-cigarettes like medical products which would have meant they basically were unavailable. It was thanks to some good grassroots campaigning by vapors, who tend to be fairly vocal anyway, and going over to Brussels, waving the placards around, meeting MPs, giving their testimony, as it were, explaining. You know, so they've got a good story to tell. I smoked 40 a day for years and years, and I picked up a vape and I've never smoked since. It's a, it's a compelling story. Maybe it's more compelling than somebody is saying, you know, I don't want my liberties taken away, I guess. So perhaps it's easier for vapors, but the vapors are going to have to do it again because there's a new tobacco products directive coming down the line. They're going to probably try and ban e-cigarette flavors and various other things. Um, it's a, it's hard. It's a, it's a hard job of work. You know, in industry have got lobbyists who are paid to do this. Um, consumers are a disparate, generally not very you know high income group of people who have got better things to do. That's what it comes down to. They, they haven't got the time to be constantly engaging with this professional interest group and as you say they're nearly all funded by the state these ngos i know you know alcohol action island classic example you know literally set up to lobby for a piece of legislation in scotland all the main temperance groups are funded by the government as good as saying funded by the smp the smp want this policy these pressure groups push for i don't know who's pulling who's strings but it seems to me to be basically a corrupt system in which governments pay for their own pressure groups to put pressure on them and then they can say they're bowing to pressure it's a it's a pretty disgraceful state of affairs it happens a lot at the eu level as well um so yeah be alert and and get your voice heard politicians will listen the support for this stuff in politics 
amongst most politicians, it's kind of wide, but pretty shallow. Um, they do it because they don't think there's a cost to it. If they feel there is going to be a cost to it, politically in particular, then they'll think twice. They're not that committed to this kind of stuff. It's just one of many policies that gets passed across their desk from day to day. The public isn't going to be out. You know, It's not going to change the course of elections if they don't bring in minimum pricing or plain packaging. Most people don't care. Um, they, they capitulate on these issues because they have a very intense and fairly small group of largely state-funded lobbyists putting pressure on them. If they get a bit of pressure the other way, they might make a different decision. Chris Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Great speaking to you, Gary. Take care.